0: One of the problems with classical music in general is that it gets stale. And I think the thing that the early music movement contributed is that it is all about discovery. My new violin teacher was an older player in the Columbus Symphony Orchestra who thought that the best thing for a young boy learning to play the violin would be to play etudes. Only etudes, no music, only etudes, all the time. I, I think that the art of an instrumentalist in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries was largely based on the performer's ability to improvise. They just said, really, if you're going to do this seriously, throw yourself into it wholeheartedly.
1: Hey everyone, and welcome back to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf.
2: All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories.
1: Today, I am incredibly excited to bring you the music and wisdom of the incomparable Paul O'Dette. Though he truly needs no introduction, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. One of the leading figures of the early music movement, guitarist, lutenist, and conductor, Paul O'Dette has performed in festivals in virtually every major city in the world. He's made over 120 recordings, among those the complete solo works of John Dowland, He is professor of lute and the director of early music at the Eastman School of Music and the artistic director of the Boston Early Music Festival. I could go on all day listing his accomplishments, and I feel so honored that he agreed to have a chat with me. On the show today, we're going to hear Paul talk about his rock and roll guitar origins, about improvisation that was happening 400 or so years before the invention of jazz, about playing the lute and early guitar. Also, for you flamenco guitarists out there, we're gonna hear Paul Odette play some seriously amazing music from nearly two centuries ago that's in that 12-beat cycle that we love so much in flamenco. But let's start at the beginning.
0: It's been an interesting journey because I grew up in a musical household. My mother was an opera singer and my father was an avid amateur musician and had an enormous record collection. And My whole childhood was spent going to opera rehearsals and concerts and either records 24-7 or the classical music station in Washington, D.C., which was called WGMS, Good Music Station. And I started out with piano lessons and then violin lessons. And then we moved to Columbus, Ohio. And my new violin teacher was an older player in the Columbus Symphony Orchestra who thought that the best thing for a young boy learning to play the violin would be to play etudes, only etudes, no music, only etudes all the time. And I begged her to let me play one little piece each week. And she said, no, not until you've played through all, I don't know how many books of Wolfhart etudes, a classic set of every conceivable technical problem, no redeeming social value whatsoever. And I faithfully practiced my Wolfhart etudes and desperately begged to be able to play one little piece of music that I would enjoy practicing. And she said, no, not for several years until you've played all of these etudes. And I got really frustrated. And so I quit taking violin lessons. I had been delivering the morning newspaper in Columbus, getting up at four o'clock in the morning, delivering the paper every morning, seven days a week, winter, four o'clock in the morning, walking around the neighborhood for an hour and a half and then trying to go back to sleep a little bit before going to school. And I saved up my newspaper delivery money to buy an electric guitar, a Fender and an amplifier. And I taught myself how to play Hendrix and Clapton licks off of recordings. I just sat and put the needle down, picked out the first five or six notes and put the needle down and got the next ones. And and I went through one piece after another and taught myself how to play the electric guitar. I was rebelling, not against my parents, but against this maddening violin teacher. Because my parents said, if you're interested in learning how to play the electric guitar, all we ask is that you do it on the highest possible level. They weren't inclined to say, no, this is horrible. This is anti-music. You can't possibly do this. They were totally supportive. Mm-hmm. They just said, really, if you're going to do this seriously, throw yourself into it wholeheartedly. And so I did. And I was playing rock guitar in, an, in uh, I had two different, groups, one in junior high school and one in high school in Columbus. The trio that we had in high school was called Froth, and we played mostly Hendrix, Cream, some stuff that we wrote. I wrote one song based on the first movement of the Prokofiev sixth piano sonata.
1: I think I can hear the potential for stage diving in that one.
0: So there were some, <laughs> some rather unusual things that we did. And a friend of our families came to visit for Christmas one year, a countertenor who had sung in a madrigal ensemble with my mother. He suggested to me that I could improve my rock guitar technique if I would study classical guitar, Mm -hmm. because classical guitar has a real pedagogy, he said, whereas electric guitarists are all Mm self-taught. So you would have a leg up on those other electric guitarists if you studied the classical guitar. Clever. And he gave me a Christopher Parkening Plays Bach recording as a Christmas present, (laughs) and I heard these four-part Bach fugues, and I thought, wow, you can do that on a guitar? Mm -hmm. That is amazing. And so I signed up for classical guitar lessons, and my teacher, after, I don't know, six or seven weeks, gave me a set of six Renaissance lute pieces to play on the guitar. And I thought, the music's wonderful. It has such verve and personality and and color. And then I started thinking, but why am I playing these on the guitar? If they were written for the lute, Shouldn't I really play them on the lute? And what is a lute? And what did it sound like anyway? And in those days in Columbus, there was a fantastic record shop called Discount Records down on the Ohio State University campus that had a huge collection of every classical recording from all over the world. I mean, obscure Czech recordings and and so on. So I went and I said, I need to find a recording of lute music. Then there's a new Julian Bream recording lute music from the Royal Courts of Europe. The guy there, the salesman said, you you must buy this. So I bought it and I took it home. I put the needle on and I heard the sound of the lute. It was almost as if I had been struck by a thunderbolt. At the first court, just the sound of the instrument transported me. And I turned to my parents, this was at dinner, And I said, I don't know where or how, but I have to get one of those instruments. And they said, why don't you ask your guitar teacher? Maybe he knows something. So I went to my next lesson and I said, I just heard a lute. I have to learn how to play the lute. And he looked at me as if I had three heads and said, well, I own a lute and I can't play it. It's much too difficult to play. If you're interested, I'll sell it to you. And I said, great, fantastic. So he sold me his lute and quite a nice library, good stack, a foot and a half high, of tablatures. Okay,
1: a quick word about tablature. For guitars and lutes, tablature, or tab, is actually the oldest form of notation for those instruments. And it's basically a graph of where your hand goes. In most cases, it's a series of lines representing the strings and numbers for the frets. The same stuff you find on the internet today for rock songs. Though there are some scary systems, like German tab is, is pretty tough, a different symbol for every place on the fretboard. But the lute tab that Paul is probably talking about used letters instead of numbers for the frets. So, letter A for an open string, letter B for the first fret, letter C for the second fret, and so on. It's actually a really great way to read the music of composers like Dowland and Mudarra and Santz, Da Milano, because you really know without question where the composer's hand was on the fretboard. It's pretty great.
0: the whole collection and the lute for $500, got the lute home, looked at it, and I saw the action was about an inch and a half off of the fingerboard. And I thought Hercules couldn't play a C major chord on an instrument set up like this. It's impossible. So I phoned a local guitar maker in Columbus and I said, um, could you adjust the action on this lute that I just bought? And he said, sure, bring it in. And he looked at it and he said, oh, yeah, that's a mess. So he lowered the action so that it was like that of a classical guitar, gave it back to me after two days. I started playing the six Renaissance lute pieces on the lute and took them to my next lesson. So there's a week that has transpired (laughs) between my buying the unplayable lute and playing these six pieces. (laughs) On the lute, my guitar teacher said, (laughs) you couldn't play. And as soon as I played these pieces, he, he said, uh, how, how did you do that? And I showed him the action, and he immediately said, why didn't I think of that? Well, I think it's really significant that it didn't occur to him to, to try and fix the action. Because in those days, this was in 1970, mm-hmm. the perception of old instruments was that they were primitive mm-hmm. and unsophisticated and unwieldy and impossible to play. With that perception in mind, he just assumed, well, we know the lute was a difficult instrument to play. He he never questioned the setup of the instrument. And as a naive teenager, I just thought, well, this doesn't make any sense to me. Why don't we just lower this action, make this thing playable? And it was because of that naivety that I hadn't been brainwashed into the old instruments are unsophisticated and unplayable school of thinking that i managed to achieve then a playable user-friendly instrument and then i started playing dowland pieces and so on on that lute
1: how about we hear paulo depp play some dowland on the lute now the first in this set of two is the upbeat my lord willoughby's welcome home and then true to dowland's often somber or melancholy character One of his chromatic fantasies, titled The Forlorn Hope Fantasy, switch now from the lute to some truly old-school Spanish guitar playing. Paulo Det has an excellent album titled Jacaras, J-A-C-A-R-A-S, that features the music of Spanish guitarist and composer Santiago de Murcia.
0: You said you were interested in something from Santiago. How did you end up getting together with a percussionist? for that one? Pedro Estefan is a very beloved percussionist with medieval and Renaissance ensembles in Europe. He works a lot with Jordi Saval in Spain. And so I'd done quite a few projects with Pedro, and I said, because of the accounts of performances of Spanish guitar music in the 17th and 18th centuries, there was often a castanet player or two involved, or other percussion instruments. Guitars accompanying dances, there were often multiple guitars, so that one player would strum, kind of rhythm guitar, and the other guy, the lead guitar, plays the tunes and the and the variations. So we invited Pedro to play percussion on that, Andrew Lawrence King as an early harp specialist to play uh, harp, and then Pat O'Brien and Steve Player to uh Baroque guitar colleagues of mine played various sizes of guitars in the the rhythm section.
1: Are there works on this album that you consistently play live?
0: Oh, I play lots of them. There are lots of great ones. In the excitement category, there's one of the earliest fandangos. It's like the great 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 grandpa of the Fandango de Huelva.
1: The same fandango that so many of us play on the flamenco guitar.
0: a wild piece with a lot of vigorous strummed passages a lot of very quick scale passages which are played across the strings on the baroque guitar because of the re-entrant tuning
1: okay so let's talk about re-entrant tuning it's certainly something that's used on the baroque guitar but it's also used on lots of other stringed instruments from all over the world the banjo uses it the indian sitar ukulele, charango, the mexican vihuela, the venezuelan cuatro, and basically it means that instead of the strings being ordered from highest to lowest like they are in a guitar, start low, move in order from low to high or vice versa. Instead, on a five-string baroque guitar, you often have the lowest string in the middle, so when you play all the strings in order, it sounds more like this. Sorry, I don't own a Baroque guitar, so pardon the synthesizer. So you get two high strings, the lowest ones in the middle, and then two high strings on top. This is called reentrant tuning. Why do we care? Well, for one thing, it lets you do scales that have this really lovely sound that we call campanella, which is the Italian word for bells. On the guitar, the typical way to play a scale is to play a couple notes on one string, and a couple notes on the next, meaning each new note you play is also stopping its predecessor. A Baroque guitar can get this special shimmering bell-like sound as a special effect very easily. Because so many successive notes are on separate adjacent strings many more of the notes are allowed to ring. Allowing for that special campanella bell effect. This is hard on the guitar, but on instruments with re-entrant tuning, you get the sound very easily and naturally.
0: So they use this campanellas effect, which is very exciting and special to the Baroque guitar. And there's another piece I particularly love from that collection, which is an African dance called kumbe. And the kumbe has the earliest known notation of a golpe, which in modern guitar playing would mean that you hit the bridge with your thumb. I don't think that's the meaning in this period, because if you were to hit the bridge of the Baroque guitar, you would put your hand through the soundboard after one or two Uh bops like that. But I decided to imitate a lot of South American folk guitar techniques where you hit the string. You, you play the note and hit the string, which makes a percussive uh-huh. sound for playing that. So there's a notated offbeat golpe in this kumbes, oh, uh, cool. which I think is really special and is very African in character.
1: So I'm going to play you a set of three pieces off Paulo Dett's album Hakaras, featuring works by guitarist and composer Santiago de Murcia. The first is that early fandango we heard about. The second is a jacara, which uses that same great 12-beat pattern we hear so often in flamenco alegrías and bulerías. And the last will be the cumbes, with the earliest known notated golpe.
0: One of the problems with the baroque guitar is that because there are no bass strings you're playing inverted chords all the time right so you're limited in terms of registral changes uh-huh. you can go higher but you can't go lower on the instrument because there ain't no lower <laughs> <laughs> and also because of the tuning they tended to write in the same keys all the time so most of the oh. pieces are in d minor or a major or c major or something like that so In programming Baroque guitar music, I always have to find some way to relieve the potential tedium of the same kinds of sounds all the time. time. So what is it about early
1: music that makes it so enticing for you?
0: Well, I think the thing that's important about it is that it is all about discovery. And one of the problems with classical music in general is that it gets stale and gets stuck in a rut. The same small repertoire played in the same way over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that the early music movement contributed was this sense of discovery in terms of looking for new music looking for new instruments, looking for new playing techniques, looking for new ways to play the music, researching the historical performance practices. Mm -hmm. Every single one of those brings a new element to the music, which is not an arbitrary, willful, I as a performer want to do things differently from the way anybody else has ever performed this music. Because I don't think that really contributes a whole lot. You know, this sort of Glenn Gould, if if everybody else plays this movement fast, I'm gonna play it slow. If everybody else plays that movement slowly, I'm gonna play it fast. If everybody plays this legato, I'm gonna play it staccato. That's just willful, wanting to be different for the sake of being different, rather than saying, what is this music about? And how can I best bring this music to life for the listener? So speaking of performance practice, talk to me about improv a little bit in early music. I think that the art of an instrumentalist in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries was largely based on the performer's ability to improvise. The modern tradition where you play compositions by other composers and you try to play them better or more effectively than other people was not a concept. Mm -hmm. In those periods. Instead, you were trained on how to improvise over ground basses. Mm -hmm. On pasamezzo, romanesca, folias, passacaglia, chacona.
1: A ground bass or a basso ostinato is more or less the world's first version of a chord progression. Players would improvise melody lines over a repeating bass line. And a repeating bass line frequently implies the same chords. This kind of improv was called divisions, or diferencias, or falsas, which is probably where we get the flamenco term falseta. Some of the more popular of these bass lines were eventually named. Here's a little bit of a folia from Jordi Saval, and you'll hear, the second time through the progression, some divisions. The famous Bach Chacon is also based on a repeating chord progression. Here's Julian Bream playing a little bit of that.
0: were able to improvise different, more interesting variations that hadn't been heard by other players, Mm -hmm. determined the way in which you were regarded by other players and the public. And the same thing went for Fantasias. For instance, in the 16th century, players improvised contrapuntal music because they were trained in counterpoint not being an art practiced on pieces of paper where you work out all of the imitative entrances. I have trouble imagining anybody could do that on the fly. I mean, that's just so unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, the reason we can't do it today is that nobody teaches us how to do it. But if you were taught counterpoint by somebody who did it with you at the instrument and said, okay, let's look at how you can write two-part counterpoint. So, here's a typical subject, and here are the possible places where you can have imitation at the fifth, imitation at the octave, etc. And you would do exercises for months and months and months of all kinds of contrapuntal subjects, concentrating on two part imitative counterpoint. And if you did this every day, you would develop skill at it. It's like learning a foreign language, where you first hear somebody speaking a language that you can't speak, and you think, well, I could never, ever do that. And then if you were to have good training, you would start to see after a while you would acquire vocabulary, you would acquire an understanding of the grammar, you would learn how to say very standard things that you would have to do every day. If you were learning how to improvise, counterpoint or even improvising variations on a ground bass, mm-hmm. you would learn stock cliches to start out with. And then what separates the mediocre, the average musician from the great musician is that the average musician plays only cliches. right? And the great musician is somebody who knows how to push <laughs> the envelope. So you're doing something, oh, no one's ever done that before. And that's where the real skill comes in uh-huh. for that kind of thing. And I think gradually, performers of early music are getting better and better at being able to spontaneously ornament music.
1: While somehow having a sense for the idiom.
0: Right. And having played enough ornamented examples. I mean, if you're playing a madrigal, and it's a famous madrigal like che col partire" of Cipriano de Rore, and you look at 12 different people's uh, arrangements of it, their ornamented versions from the 16th century, you would start to acquire a sense of the kinds of things that they would do. And then you could do that yourself. You could start to imitate that. Where I don't think we've even started is cultivating the skill at improvising uh, imitative counterpoint. Organists learn how to do this. In fact, it used to be standard practice at the Paris Conservatory, your graduate recital did not used to consist of let's see how many of the most difficult pieces in the organ literature you can play note perfectly in a recital, which is how we tend to do things today, but rather the professors would give you a fugue subject and would say, okay, in the style of Buxtehude, here's another subject in the style of Bach, another subject in the style of Mozart, another one in the style of rager or whatever the organists feel is important. But the exam was, how well can you improvise? The only way you can improvise in a style is if you know that style inside out and backwards. Mm -hmm. So that's why improvisation is so important. Because if you just noodle aimlessly, that's not really good improvisation. That's just structureless noodling. And then the problem with that is that if you're just improvising without any structure, one is bound to combine Renaissance diminutions with Joe Pass, with Jimi Hendrix, with flamenco guitar licks. With You're likely to end up with a complete mishmash Uh unless you really have a structured way of of going about it. Mm -hmm. But some of the descriptions of lute players in the in the 16th century, just sitting down and improvising for a couple of hours. Probably all kinds of different music, contrapuntal fantasias, dance pieces, because a lot of the dances were based on ground basses. Yeah. But there are even discussions in the 18th century and, and late 17th century that you needed to be able to sit down and improvise a dance suite, Almond, Courant, Sarabande, with minuets, berets, and jig improvise. That If you know what the structure of these dances is, then you can improvise huh. in that. But you can't just noodle in 3-4 and call that a minuet. You know, you need to have the two-bar phrase, the two-bar phrase, the four-bar phrase, so that you have the right structure for each of the sections. Uh-huh. But they learned how to do that, and that's what they did. Did that die out far You, you mean the, the Paris Conservatory I mean, exam? Yeah, for yeah, exactly. Well, I have a good friend in England, a conductor now, Roy Goodman, who applied for the organ scholarship at uh, King's College in Cambridge. Roy is my age, so this must have been 40 years ago. And his organ audition was playing a couple of prepared pieces. Mm -hmm. And then Sir David Wilcox was sitting next to him on the choir bench, put down the score of a Bach fugue. Wilcox intentionally chose a rather Mm -hmm. obscure Bach fugue. And Roy thought, okay, this is a sight reading part of the exam. So he sat down and he was going along quite well. On the second page, Sir David tapped him on the shoulder and said, now when I turn the page, just pretend that there's something written there. And carry on finishing the fugue with exactly the right structure that is is required. And he turned the page and it was blank. So that was 40 years ago. And that was still part of the exam. And Roy reckoned that he hadn't been very successful with his improvisation because he didn't get the he didn't get the scholarship. So he became a Baroque violinist and then, a, and then a conductor. Completely. Yeah.
1: So speaking of Bach, I'm gonna end the show today with Paulo Dett's arrangement of the Presto from Bach's G minor violin sonata, BWV 1001. But before I have Paul introduce that piece, I just wanna say thanks for listening to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf.
2: All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories.
1: If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes, like it on Facebook, or follow on Twitter at All Strings. Until next time, enjoy the music.
0: I'm very partial to the G minor violin sonata arrangement that I made. I think it works so beautifully on the lute. There's the famous G minor fugue, there is a Siciliana, and then there's a fantastic Presto. Which I added a bunch of bass notes and extra things too, because the violin is mostly monophonic in that. So I filled out the harmonies and so on. And so we know that Bach loved the lute. He included it in several vocal works in the St. John Passion, the original version of the St. Matthew Passion, in the Trauer Ode, which is one of the cantatas. He invented a harpsichord with gut strings to sound like a lute about which the observers at the time said of this gut-strung harpsichord it sounded almost exactly like a lute except that the lute is better and more expressive because it has dynamic and timbral variety which the keyboard instrument doesn't Mm -hmm. so i think you could infer from that that because bach preferred to play his solo violin works at the keyboard where he could realize all of the harmonies and and the counterpoint and the bass lines. Preferably a keyboard with dynamics. That's exactly what the lute is. Mm -hmm. So my feeling is that lute versions of the Bach violin pieces are the optimum. It's exactly what he had in mind. So in making this arrangement, I was thinking like a lute player. Because Bach had an idealized, fully voiced version of this piece in his head, Mm -hmm. which he played on the keyboard but didn't write down, Mm -hmm. how can I reconstruct Bach's original version? Which is important because a lot of people today in the guitar world think that they'll achieve a result closer to Bach if they play exactly what is in the violin or text without deviating by a note. And in fact, ironically, what you get if you try to do that is further away from what Bach had in mind. So you have to go back and reconstruct by filling in the harmonies, filling out the counterpoint, adding the bass line, and so on. I, I love that presto. I think it's just great.